Shabbat Shalom. So I'm looking at the time, and I'm thinking, man, I got extra time today. And I did a really short, short sermon. And, and I've been having this problem with not having enough time, so I decided I'm going to shorten up my sermons. So I did. And now I got extra time. I don't know what I'm going to do. I think we're going to have a question and answer time is what I think, right? Yeah, I think we will, in fact. So uh, get ready with some questions as you think through this uh, material. And Don, would you uh, please bring me a pen, if you would? Thanks. Yeah, thanks. A pen, yeah. So... Um, Thanks so much. Oops. The sermon series. <laughs> Illustrated sermon series. Okay, so uh, yeah, so I, I've been talking, of course, about marriage and family. And so as I, as I finish this up today, uh, I just want you to think through kind of what we've been uh, wrestling with as far as the text and our culture and what God requires of us. And if you have any questions on uh, anything that I've taught over the last three weeks, uh, just write that down and we'll get ready after our uh, teaching today to answer some questions. So, marriage and family. Now again, I've been coming from the perspective of the ideal, what God lays out that's in his heart and in his design. And I've recognized that we live in a broken world and that we're all born alienated from God and that we're all off the beaten path, so to speak, even before we're born. So uh, when you look at this and when you hear this, understand it's the ideal. It's what we shoot for. It might even take a generation or two or three to kind of get there, right? So don't be hard on yourself. It's not about the ideal. It's about where you're at and where you're going, right? And as you move towards that, just know that that's what God requires of us. So uh, just kind of find your place where you're at and, and grow into some of these things that may be new to you that you didn't understand. And we'll continue to grow in our marriages and our families until uh, Yeshua comes. All right, marriage and family. I've been talking about the idea that we're created in the image and likeness of God. And uh, he made us in his image and likeness. And he made us binary. Uh, we are either male or female. That's his design. And both male and female are co-equal in worth and dignity. They both have the same status. Men and women, boys and girls, everyone has the same status. Image of God. It's sacred. It's holy. We have that status. We're equal in that. Now, even though we have all this equality, there's also something that's uniquely different about male and female. Not only physically, but psychologically. Uh, in addition, um, male and female have different roles within marriage. They are not equal roles. They're equally important roles, but they're not equal. They're different roles within the marriage. In this teaching, we're going to finish up on women. Uh, we left off last week talking about women as wives, uh, and uh, the family is the very basis for culture and society. Now, I hope this teaching series on marriage and family uh, blesses and inspires you and yours to live fully for God and his glory. What the world says is important, God is oftentimes saying, that's really not important. It's not important. And what God is saying is important. The world says, that's not important. And so you've just got to get your bearings and realize that you're living for God, not the world. That, that's what you're going to live for his glory, not the glory of the world. And that's going to put you in contradistinction with your culture, the society that you find yourself in. And that is um, the, the road less traveled, so to speak, right? But that's the road we're called to, to uh, traverse. So last week, we ended with this idea that there are some truths that are self-evident. Let me give you a truth that is self-evident when it comes to women, okay? Only women can create human life in their wombs. I know there's people out there that disagree with me. For the life of me, I can't even begin to understand that. I, I, you know, this is self-evident, okay? This has been since time immemorial that it is 
not needing to be stated, but today we have to state it. Only women can create human life in their wombs. It's the design of God. It's the gift of God. As we stated last week, women are the activators of human life. It's tied into the spirit of God's activity uh, in that Genesis chapter 1 uh, and verse 1 and 2 text. Women are the activators of human life. Genesis 3.20 says this, Now the man called his wife's name Eve. This is where she gets her actual name, Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. She's the mother of all the living. And we'll get down to this in a moment, but let me just state it, and then we'll get down to it. It's through women that every human being is to be born. And that's the glory of a woman. That's the design of God. All of humanity will come through Eve, so to speak, women, if you will. Now, the fall and its curse further reveal a wife's primary role in a marriage. When we talk about roles in a marriage, we have primary and secondary roles, both men and women. So one of the primary roles in marriage for a woman is revealed in the curse that's given to her for her sin. This is found in Genesis 3.16. To the woman, he said, God, God is speaking, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. The primary curse is primary because it relates to the primary role of a wife in marriage, i.e. childbearing. So, so when Eve became the wife of Adam, her primary role was to bring forth life. They were to establish a family. And so from her, what she could do that, no, that Adam could not do was conceive, carry that life, and give birth to that life. That was her primary role, or one of those primary roles in her marriage with Adam. God says, because of your sin, I'm going to intensify the pain in your primary role. See how that then becomes evident that that is her primary role in a marriage. Children are the gifts of God. Psalm 127 verse 3 says, Behold, children are the gift of the Lord. This is slide 21. Children are the gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Don't let the world tell you any different. Bearing children is the gift of God. They are the very gift of God to us. It's the reward of the womb. Only women can conceive and carry, give birth to a human being. It's the glory of a woman to do so. It's her power. It's her wonder. It's her mystery, right? This belongs to that gender. Every human being will come from a woman. This is true for all of human history from the beginning to the end. And this is what the curse comes to, i.e., childbearing. Due to what? Her sin. In addition, there's another curse that comes to her. We talked about the curses that came to Adam. These are curses that are unique to Eve. Here's the second curse that comes. It says, yet, verse 16, the rest of the passage, passage. In fact, I'm going to read the whole passage. You can leave that slide up. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And then verse 16 goes on to say, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Keep in mind, this is part of the curse. God's qualifying this as a curse. So in what ways is that a curse? When it says, yet your desire will be for your husband. How's that a curse? That you would desire your husband? We have to dig a little bit deeper, deeper into the Hebrew here. What does it mean? What does it mean? The Hebrew noun for desire is found only three times in the Bible. This particular word is only found three times throughout the entire Bible. The second time it's found is one chapter later. And in the following chapter, it kind of gives us some insight as to what this word actually means. I think you'll find this intriguing. Intriguing. 
This is the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 7. Let me pick up the reading. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? You know, as a side note, as a side note, one of the things that are, is going to make or break you in life is being offended. You, you can't, you got to resist the urge to be offended. You know, love is not easily offended. You know, you got to be able to take criticism. You got to be able to take no for an answer and, and not take that personal from family, friends, business leaders or whatever, right? Uh, uh, you, you have to be able to say, you know what? Uh, it doesn't matter what's going on. I'm going to stay focused on the goal. I'm going to press forward. I'm going to take that criticism. And I'm going to run with it. I'm going to learn from it. You learn more from failures than you do successes. So embrace the failures that come along. Embrace the rejection that comes along. It's part of that learning, the shaping of your character. So he's all bent out of shape. He's all hurt, taking it personal. God's saying, come on. You know, you're going to have other opportunities. Resolve the anger, Cain. Then he goes on to say in verse 7, Genesis 4 and 7, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. In this, in this passage, sin is personified, like some type of like uh, uh, attacker, some type of like predator. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you but you must master it. Sin is behind the door and it's, gonna, it's, gonna, it's coming for you. Its intent is to take you down. You, you need to get ready for this because you have to master this. So the word desire here in this passage actually means to control something. Sin wants to control Cain. If Cain doesn't resolve his anger, it gives an opportunity for sin to really kind of pull him into captivity, right? And that's the desire of sin. It wants to control Cain. God says you must master it. You have to dominate it or it will dominate you. Now, let me give you another translation. This is the New English translation. Notice the way it states this passage. Genesis 3, 6. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your labor pains. With pain, you will, be, uh, you will give birth to children. You will want to control your husband. This is slide number 29. Let's go ahead and put that up. You will want to control your husband. Isn't that interesting? The NET, the New English Translation, just hits it right on the head of the nail. The idea of this Hebrew word meaning desire, or actually that we translate desire, can also mean to control. So Eve, this is part of the curse. You're going to want to control your husband, and that's not a good thing. That's a curse. But nevertheless, you're going to want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. That's not good either. This whole relationship between Adam and Eve is going to be impaired and uh, stressed. And it's not going to go like God had intended it to go because of their sin. So wives, your fleshly instinct, let me, let me, um, okay, so, yep. So uh, your fleshly instinct will be to try to control your husbands. Can I hear an Amen. Thank you for that honesty. Wives, your fleshly instinct is going to be, you're going to want to try to control your husband. You want to be in the headship. You want to make all the decisions and lead the family. But in return, he's not going to allow you to do that. He's going to dominate you. And that relationship is going to be a very difficult relationship to navigate. Your job, though, is to not control him. 
don't try to control him. He's not your child. He's your head. Your fleshly desire to lord over him is tied into that original sin. It's a curse. It's only going to bring and intensify curses in your marriage and in your life. Honor him. Submit to him. Follow him. Help him. That's your job. That's how you reverse the curse. In fact, the good news is that in Messiah, the curses can be reversed. It's Yeshua that tells us what our role assignments are and how to do that and do that well. He's the one that brings healing to our marriages. He's the one that brings that balance and that harmony so that our marriages are whole and happy and fruitful. That's not easy, though. That's a task that we all grow into. In the Messiah, we've been born to born again, I should say, so that we can accomplish uh, what God has given to us. It's in that born again experience that we begin to reverse the curse. Now keep, keep in mind, keep in mind, wives, a central part of your glory is in being a life activator, a propagator of life in the context of marriage, to give your husband children. This is part of the design of God. It's one of the central parts of your glory. Think about it, right? Eve's called the mother of all living things. And this glory given to her is a great glory. Because really, what we find just a few passages later is that the Messiah is going to come. How's it going to come? Through the birth of a virgin. Again, we get this idea that, you know what? Women are highly exalted in the scriptures. It's through a woman that the Messiah comes. And because of that, the world will be saved. Because of that, humanity will be redeemed. So the exaltation of women throughout the Hebrew Scriptures and, and the New Testament is cataloged for us to explore and discover. It's a beautiful thing. This whole idea of childbearing and the domain of a woman and her femininity and her ability to activate life is really unique and to be honored by men everywhere, by our world. And yet the world undermines all of that, really. The world is actually attacking that. Uh, but God's saying, no, that's the thing I've created, and it brings meaning, purpose, and happiness, fulfillment. So, in light of that, childbearing, within the context of marriage, is something that you should pursue if you're in a marriage. If you're called to be single, that would be different. And that's a whole different set of ethics and values and importance. But if you have your eyes on marriage or you're in a marriage, these become your, your, your roles and functions within that marriage. And that's a beautiful thing. We want to encourage that. So in light of that, cherish, respect, and honor your husbands. Help them. This is your glory. Do not live independent or in competition with him. Rather, submit to him and help him in his calling. That's part of your calling. You're one flesh with him. His success is your success. His failure is your failure. You're one in Messiah. So help him. And in doing so, you're helping yourself. So don't live independent or in competition with him. Serve him, love him, help him procreate with him and establish a family. Yeah, that's one of the central purposes of marriage. Propagate, multiply, fill the earth. It's the call of God on our lives. It's a beautiful call. Your family is fulfilling one of the fundamental purposes of God in taking dominion over this world. So what he told Adam and Eve, go be fruitful, multiply, and take dominion over the world. You know, families, they are uh, the smallest and the initial uh, and essential, I should say, social group for forming and giving rise to government, be that civil or religious, education. It's the basis for business and commerce, for arts and entertainment, and media. Is it any wonder that this world is attacking 
marriage and the family, trying to redefine it, trying to deconstruct it. It's the attack of the enemy. God's saying, no, you do this and you'll build what? Strong families. You'll produce good and strong communities. As a result, you'll have good, strong cities, nations. The world will be strong. But if it's deconstructed and undermined, everything begins to break down. All of society, our culture disintegrates into darkness and misery. This is the war that's going on between uh, light and darkness, good and evil, right and wrong. Our job is to fulfill what God has given to us. That's who we are. So wives, what you do in regard to your marriage and family will either bless or curse every part of our culture, society, and world we live in. No pressure, though. Yeah, your glory is great, but your responsibility is also very great. Your primary responsibility as a wife and a mother is to manage your home. Primary number one responsibility, manage the home. Titus 2.5. Wives, you are to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Notice, workers at home. What does that mean, right? To be a worker at home. It means that the home is your primary focus. Not your only focus, but that's your primary focus. It's your domain. It belongs to you. It's the safe haven for your children to be nurtured and raised. It's actually a sacred place, sacred dominion that belongs to you. And one of the primary tasks that you're responsible for is their education, right? We talked about this. The role of the Spirit is a teacher. That's one of the main primary attributes of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit is called the teacher. Isn't that true? And, and who's a better teacher than women? Women just naturally are, are teachers. From the time you were born, your mother was training you, teaching you, raising you up. And it's just part of who they are, and they do it so well, right? So your job is to educate the kids. You and your husband may decide to educate them through homeschooling, private schooling, public schooling, or even a hybrid of that. You know, there, there's a way to homeschool now where you join, I think it's called Options in the state of Colorado. So the kids that are homeschooled go once a week, I think it is, to the public school. And, uh, and then what they do is they kind of oversee and make sure the kid's up to snuff on all of the standards and so forth. And uh, it's kind of a beautiful thing, that hybrid model. Uh, but anyway, there's you know three, four, five different ways to educate your kids. The point is you must be involved in their education. You're responsible for their education. You're responsible for it. Be involved, be responsible. And I've seen people come through the public school system and I mean, oh my gosh, you know, or even private schooling, they can really bomb out. Or in homeschool, I've seen homeschoolers really bomb out. The point is, is this, parents have to be engaged, have to be involved in whatever model they have chosen to educate their children. And children, you have every right to be mad at your mom and dad if when you get out into the business world, you discover <clears throat> that you don't have an education. Yeah, you can be mad at your mom and dad. Got to forgive them, but uh, you can be mad at them because mom and dad, we are responsible for them. They're too young to educate themselves. So let's do a good job. And I, I'm grateful for our community. I think our community is doing a great job. We've got a lot of homeschoolers, got some in private school, got some in public school, uh, some doing the hybrid deal. Uh, but I, I'm grateful to be part of a community that really values kids, and they're doing a great job with their, with their kids. So uh, thank you for that. So teach and nurture them into um, adulthood. They will influence and advance God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That next generation, they'll be the influencers for their generation, right? What you're doing now with your kids, 
is going to have a big impact in the world ahead of them. So do a great job. We're going to change the world with our kids. I can tell you from experience, as much joy as they will bring you, the grandkids will bring you even greater joy. It just gets better and better and better. I love the grandkids part because you're really not that responsible because they're not your direct children, you know. So you have a lot less responsibility as a grandparent. So it's just fun and games and send them back home, you know. But, uh, but yeah, we do have some responsibilities as grandparents to, to um, help our kids raise their kids. So it's a family affair. All right, so... Let me talk about, let's see. I think what I want to do is, um, I think I want to talk a little bit about, because uh, I know it's going to come up in our question time, about whether or not a woman can work outside the home. What about a career for a woman? All that kind of stuff. Um, I, I want to say that the picture we get of a wife in the scriptures is much broader and fuller than what's being presented um, through the pulpit most of the time. And I've talked about this last week that women certainly can work outside the home. In fact, uh, they're responsible to bring income into the home. They're not the primary breadwinner, but they need help. Part of helping a husband is that sometimes they need to bring income into their homes. You know, how do they do that? You know, how do they sort that out? How do they keep the priority uh, when they have small kids? That's a really difficult task. I I can tell you that when Don and I uh, were married, you know, I got her a job early on, you know, uh, because, you know, I'm thinking of ways she could help me. And part of that was income. So I got her a job early on. And so she's making uh, really good wages. And I'm making really good wages. And it's a union job, so we're making good wages. And uh, so, you know, we're both chugging along and, we get married, and about three years into the marriage, uh, we get pregnant. And so that was a blessing of God. Uh, we actually were in a situation where we didn't think we were going to be able to have kids due to other uh, situations. But nonetheless, we're pregnant, and all of a sudden, she's going to have her first child. So she really struggled with that because here she is working. She'd been working for about five years, and now she's pregnant. And so she's like, you know what? I don't think I can keep my job, and I think I should give that up, and I think I need to take care of, you know, our baby. And, and uh, so she really wrestled with that and came to the conclusion that she was supposed to quit. And that was not an easy decision. That was a lot of agon- agonizing, you know, uh, in terms of making that decision um, because it, the pay was so good. But uh, we were at my mom's house that day, and she had made the decision to quit, and she had went into the... Uh, manager and and turned in her uh, resignation and with her effective date. So she was just talking about how hard and difficult that that you know quitting her job was was was. And my mom says, "Don, you are making the right decision. Your child is more important than your career. Your responsibility, to your child, it trumps everything else. Your child's gonna need you." You made the right decision. Don says, yeah. She goes, it's really hard because they gave me my, my pay raise today. My mom says, really, how much are you making? And Don told her how much she was making. And my mom says, well, you can't quit that job. That's unbelievable. You're a woman making that kind of money. Don't you ever quit a job like that? You know, it's like, okay, settle down, mom. You know, and then it took a few minutes. My mom kind of gathered herself and said, no, you're right. You're right. You know, this is the right decision. You know, take care of your baby. And so Dawn did that. She, she quit, and she focused on Jessica. Those first couple years were very important, of course. They, they always are. And, uh, and then later, when uh, things changed and uh, Jessica was in school, Dawn had more time, and so she actually went out and had some part-time work that she would do and bring more income into the house. And so that's kind of how we did that. Even later, when we got pregnant again, 15 years later, uh, we were in full-time ministry. We were already leading this community. And uh, so all of a sudden, Don's pregnant again. And so what did Don do? She quit all of her ministry responsibilities. And she carries a lot of ministry responsibilities. She, she says, I'm not going to do any of that. Why? Because my baby's more important. My baby's more important than my career. And my baby's more important than ministry. 
I said, you're exactly right. And so she did. She took off all that time until Jessica or Shannon was older and she was able to step back into ministry. And so, you know, trying to, you know, handle all of that is no easy task. And, and, but as, as men and women, as husbands and wives, you have to kind of figure that out and chart that course for, for yourself. And know this, know this, God's in the mix. He's in the mix. Just like Justin was saying, when Don, Don said, I'm going to quit my job, you know what? I knew it was the right decision, but it was killing me because the amount of income she was bringing in was substantial. And I couldn't, I couldn't make that up. Somehow I'm trying to figure out how do we pay our bills now that you're not working. And we don't have quite enough money anymore to pay those bills. So I don't know how that's going to work, but I knew it was the right thing. And because it was the right thing, I knew God would take care of it. And he did. And he did. Our decisions should never be based on circumstances alone. Our, our decisions in life should be based on, is it the right decision? Because if it's the right one, God will take care of everything else. Everything else. If you're making it just based on circumstances, oftentimes you'll make the wrong decision. So, set your eyes on heaven. Look to your Father. He'll provide everything you need to do for every decision that you make in your life. All right, so, in conclusion... Uh, wives, devote, devote yourselves to your husbands, devote yourselves to your children, devote yourselves to your home, like the Holy Spirit. Be a helper to your husband. Be a helper to your children, a nurturer, a comforter to them, a teacher to them, a revealer of wisdom and knowledge to your husband. One of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to reveal truth. And that's tied in the feminine attributes of God, that whole aspect of wisdom and revealing. It's one of the feminine traits of God. And uh, men, we need that. We don't have that, you know, in terms of our gender. Uh, but that's tied into the gender of a woman. And I'll tell you what, my wife, one, one of the things that she got a nickname uh, early in life was wisdom. We would call her wisdom. Um, she had another nickname when we did paintball. Can't even give you that one. You didn't want to play against her on a different team. Anyway, we gave her the word wisdom. A number of our friends, they said wisdom. That's her nickname because she just always had some really wise things that just brought clarity and helped make, you know, really good decisions. I remember early in our marriage, I thought I knew everything about making money, you know? And so I came home with a friend of mine, gave me a presentation. He was part of a company that was uh, offering some uh, investment vehicles throughout the nation. It was a pretty big deal. And uh, it had a two-to-one write-off in terms of taxes. And I thought, wow, that's pretty amazing. And he explained how I could get uh, not only my taxes, uh, my tax burden completely zeroed out, I could go after the back taxes I had paid over the years too. I said, sign me up. Don says, don't do that. That don't sound right. I said, no, this is legit. This is an investment uh, um, uh, business. You know, it's been around. You know, this is all over the nation. She goes, no, that doesn't sound right. I said, no, it's legit. These are all tax laws, you know, because like my friend knows because the business is legit. And, you know, we're going to be able to file and I'm going to be able to get a lot of money back. They're going to give us thousands of dollars. And she says, no, if, if, if you can do that, then something's wrong with that because that's not right. That's not how you make money. I said, be quiet, woman. At least I said that in my mind. I went ahead and I said, no, I'm making the decision. I'm the head of this family. I'm going to do it. And I did it. And I got into that investment and it worked. And I filed and they gave me thousands of dollars in back taxes. And I told her, see, it worked. Look how better off we are. I said, we just need to buy more of this as we go on to the future years or whatever. And so I was just really proud of myself, making some good money and uh, just feeling good. And then I got my letter, came through the mail. My wife brought it to me from the IRS, handed it to me with a big smile on her face. Yeah, they said, uh, that's an abusive tax shelter, and you owe us all that money back. And you have 30 days to pay us in full. No, they gave me three days. You have three days to pay it in full, or we're going to assess penalties and interest. Yeah, so felt like I was that big. So that took a little while to get out of that. 
and to pay that back. And I paid the IRS in full. I want to say that again. I paid the IRS in full. I pay my taxes. I'm glad to pay my taxes. And everything's good. That was a long time ago. You can check. I'm good. But suffice it to say, Don has given me some wisdom over the years that has resulted in good, solid decisions. Early on, I wasn't listening to her. And I made some big mistakes because I didn't value her as a co-equal partner in every realm of our marriage. And that was a big mistake. You know, people point out all the time, well, the sin of Adam is he listened to his wife. Remember, God came and said, because you listened to your wife. No, no, the Hebrew word for listen means to obey. So when it says Shema, listen, O Israel, it's saying obey me. And what I'm telling you, obey. And what, what God was upset with Adam wasn't that he listened to his wife, it's that he obeyed his wife. She brought the fruit and said, here, take a bite, and he obeyed her. No, no, listen to your wives, men. They're going to keep you from a lot of heartache. Now, if you're listening to your wife and she's talking crazy talk about making thousands of dollars from that, then, then you can say, no, that's not a good idea. Yeah, you can do that, okay? But a lot of times they're going to give you great information from the Lord God himself. God will speak through her. You value that. You listen to that. You take that into consideration. and That'll build a strong, solid marriage. All right, so. Oversee and manage your homes and your children for the glory of God. They come from God. You give them the glory. Do not, do not let anyone diminish who you are as women and wives. Never let anyone joke about that, degrade that, undermine that. You stand up and put them in their place because what God has given to you is marvelous and glorious and holy. Don't let anyone diminish that you carry the status as image of god that's your status that's your authority you have the feminine attributes of god in your gender they're not found in the male gender only in the female gender you have a part of who god is that's unique that we don't have as men as husbands that's sacred that's important be proud of that you are needed, you're highly honored, your husbands, your children, your parents, and your community exalt you and honor you for that. You're important to us and to our community. So women and wives, fear not. The Lord is with you. Fear not. Be proud of who you are. Do what God's called you to do. And know that God is with you. All right. Shabbat shalom. That's it. I'm going to go to my question and answer time because we have some, uh, we got some time up here. So Don, why don't you come up with me? Because I'm sure you can uh, answer some of these questions too. So, And I'll need a runner with the mic. Someone who's going to hustle and run it around for me. That'd be great. Who's coming up? Pastor Chris is. Thank you. Let me get into my computer. Okay, so. Let's do our first question. All right. Um, I just had more of a theological question out of First Timothy 2. Um, in verses 14 and 15, it says, And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children. Can you explain that, please? Why <laughs> do you. we have to start with the most difficult question that could be posited? Unbelievable. Okay, let me take this off so Don can... Add in two. Actually, just bring it back up. That'd be great. Okay, so that is a very difficult verse. A lot of ink has been spilt on that one. Um, so, so 
the enemy is always trying to flip everything and change it. Okay? He wants to turn it upside down. So when you get into that whole arena of his agenda is he wants men to be passive and women to be aggressors and assertive and the leaders and for the men to follow uh, the women. So he wants to like flip-flop that uh, in marriage and in society, uh, generally speaking. And the whole idea of that has been embraced in different cultures at different times down through the timeline. So you have had different ages in which you've had a really strong kind of abusive feminism rise up. And all of a sudden the men are, you know, they're all uh, oppressed and, and passive and abdicating their roles in, in, in marriage and so forth. And that was really problematic. And I think that Paul here is trying to address that. And he's trying to say, you know, by the design of God, he made uh, the husband's head over their wives. He gave the husband authority over their wives. And he reminds them that the, the wife, the woman, was created for him, not vice versa. Adam was created first, then Eve. Eve was taken out of his side. And then Eve was made for him to help him. And so he's trying to reassert that and say, listen, uh, Adam was made first. And uh, uh, Eve was made to, to, to help him. And then in addition to that, he makes the argument, Eve is the one that was deceived. The initial original sin began with her. And that is where the fall occurred. And then she turned to her husband and she led him into that. Now, uh, you know, Paul's just making, I think, a solid case to try to reestablish the design of God prior to the fall, which was that Adam was the first to be created and he was the head of the home and that he was to oversee, protect, and provide for Eve and that she was made for him and was called to submit to him and help him. And so that's the first part of that. When it comes down, it says, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in the faith um, and sanctity and with self-restraint. I, I think what Paul's trying to communicate is that as men and women find their place in the design of God and as they turn their hearts towards God and by faith live within the framework that God has given, then we are all preserved in that sense. And part of the preservation of a woman is in her call to be uh, an activator, one who propagates human life. And it's through that that the Messiah is going to come. And because he comes, then we're all going to be saved, i.e. women and the rest of humanity. Um, and so he, I think he's trying to communicate that. It's just not really clear. And because it's not clear, sometimes it can be read in ways that I think are, are horrendous and um, hurtful. So does that answer the question halfway? Thanks. Don, you want to add to that? Thanks. Did a good job. Okay, let's go to another question. And if you want to direct a question to Don rather than me, that's fine too. Is that you trying to get out of answering my question before I ask? You it? know, I thought I thought <laughs> I'm getting the one-two punch here today, but go ahead. Okay, so um, I absolutely love and believe that part of um, our ability as a woman is to bring life into this world. Um, and in many ways, that does fall under attack in our culture. I think that's a very important point to make. Um, however, I also have been in a season of my life where I struggled to have children and um, found myself really wondering if I was really a woman, if I could really even be considered a full woman, if I ultimately wasn't able to give birth to children. And I'm sure there's women maybe watching online or even in our congregation that may be feeling that pain and they hear us saying you know that's the glory of a woman and that's our duty and that's like where our great honor comes from and they feel this deep pain and this deep um emptiness and um i was just curious what you would say to those women that would maybe be feeling that at this time yeah and i think don can speak to that too because um we didn't discover until the day we were married that we weren't able to have kids. And we didn't know that because her mother never told her. Um, when, when Dawn was like months old, six months old, she had double hernias and her ovaries were tied into those hernias. And so when they did the surgery, they basically informed Doreen, her mother, uh, yeah, you, a lot of damage and sorry to tell you, but you know, this girl's not gonna be able to have kids 
later on in life, you know. And so that, we didn't know until the day we were married, you know. I'm coming from this Catholic background. You, you don't have a family till you're at eight. And then 12 is really a good place to be. But, you know, you can't, if you got six kids, you still have a family as a, you know, Catholic boy, you know. So I'm thinking, what? I'm going to have this big family. And I find out on my wedding day, we can't have kids. That was a, that, that was a real kick to the head for me. But go ahead, Don. Um, one of the important things is, is, you know, we're, you know, God gave us ability to have children, but also he gave us abilities to have um, talents, you know, different things that he has given us. And then also in there, he's called us to be a helpmate to our husband. And sometimes I think we think that somehow we're diminished because we were a helper. When you think of it this way, what if your CEO came up to you and says, I really need your help because you're important. Would we feel diminished then? No, we wouldn't. Why do we feel diminished that we're a, a helper to our husbands? Because we really can help them in a great way. We do have wisdom and knowledge, and we're there to help them. So I think if we think ourselves beyond just having kids, that we have talents, that we actually can help our husband, then I think we're not going to feel less of a woman if somehow we couldn't have kids. I think it's all what we think in our minds because we, we put all of our basket in one thing when it's many things because God gives us many talents and many things that we can help with our husband. So I think it's just a matter of perspective when we're thinking about that. Yeah, so when I, when I was in the text uh, and working down through it, you know, the point I was trying to make is that um, having kids is a central part of your marriage. Not the only part. There's these other parts too, like being a helper to your husband, being a businesswoman, bringing money in, helping the poor, right? Advancing uh, uh, values within your culture. Those are all important things that you do as a wife in your marriage. And so if you can't have kids, well, that's not, the, that's not the only thing that you were called to do in a marriage. There's multiple things. And so it's a great point to bring up, and I think you uh, uh, spoke to that as well. And if you're in a situation where you're barren and you can't have kids, um, that's okay. That's out of your hands anyway. You, you give that to the Lord. It does not lessen you in any way because you carry the status of image of God. Your worth, your dignity, your value is in your status, image of God. Okay, roles in a marriage, that's a little bit different. And so you're called to multiple roles, and that one you may not be able to do, it may be out of your hands. That does not diminish who you are. So, good. Okay, let's go to the back. Got this hand up. He's excited. I can tell he has a good question here. Coming from the single men's community, it's got to be good. <laughs> hey, y'all. Um, so my question comes from... Um, in the eyes of God, one man and one woman, when they get married, they're in unity, correct? Um, is it possible to be in unity with two separate people throughout the course of your life? As in, like, let's say your mate were to die or, or something like that. Would that second marriage still be as valid in the eyes of God as the first one? Do we see in, like, Matthew where it talks about adultery if you remarry and things like that. So what, how, does, how do we work around that? Okay, so when you, when you enter into a covenant relationship in a marriage, you become one flesh. That's intended for life. When life ends, it ends. It's over. It's, it's interesting. There's no marriage in the age to come. So, so marriage is not, marriage is a high value here in our world, but that's it. Even the family unit as a unit, as important as that is, it doesn't go into the kingdom. A new family goes in, only those that are born again. So you'll have some in a family that don't go into the age to come because they weren't born again. And others in that family, because they were born again and became part of a, a new family, the family of God, they move into that. So our family structure, marriage, all of that, it's transitory. It's for this world, for the physical realm, and then it's over. So, so even in eternity, you know, you got the parable or the story that Jesus tells where the, I think the Sadducees bring him the story that this guy's had seven wives, which wife will be his in the age to come, you know? It's a great question when you think about it. 
Jesus says there's no marriage or given in marriage in the age to come. It's only for this age. So what that means is this. If I'm in a relationship with Don, it's a covenant relationship intended for life, and one of us dies, we're released from that covenant, from that one flesh union, from that unity that we had in that marriage. And now if I had passed away, she'd be free if she decided to, to marry someone else in the Lord. And if she, if she chose to do that, she would be as united with her second husband as she was with me. Not as happy, <laughs> but as united in marriage and in the eyes of God in this life. Okay, Eric, did you want to say anything to that? <clears throat> okay. So um, when we have a blockhead friend come up to us and there's something going wrong in their relationship and they ask for advice. How do we share this advice without it blowing up in our face when they get back together or whatever, you know? Give me, give me an example of, of, of what the, uh, of, uh, uh, yeah. Just, everyone knows a, a they have that friend. Pro- <laughs> hypothetical problem. Um, so there's a problem between a couple because she did something he didn't want him to do or vice versa. And now they kind of split and it's over, man. It's over. I, I, you know, I'm done with her and it's really not over, but you want to share some advice with them because he's seeking your counsel. Yeah. How do you share with them without them getting back to, you know, share with him in a way that when they don't get back together, they see you as the common enemy to, you know, boost their relationship back to the way it was. (laughs) Okay. So I think if I understand you correctly, you're saying, you know, how do you share with them? If it doesn't work out, then they're going to be mad at you long-term because you were trying to push them back and they didn't get back. If they don't have a godly, if they don't really have a godly relationship, but they are seeking your counsel. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, I, I think for me, you know, I, I look at marriage as being sacred. It's holy. And so I always push people back into their marriages. You know, what do they, they stand up in front of their witnesses or friends or families, the man of God, heaven itself. And they say, you know, in good times and bad times and sickness and in health until death do us part. And I'm thinking to myself, you're going to have problems. That's why you're taking those vows. Yeah, it, that's a prediction of what's coming. You're going to have great times and bad times, sickness and healthy times, times in which you've lost your income, right? Difficult times. So I always tell people in those difficult times, say, hey, look, stick it out, work it out. God will help you. I always fight for pushing them back into that marriage. Now, if that marriage relationship has problems significant enough where it puts the woman at physical risk, right, that, that uh, physical abuse, um, then that would be the only time that I would say separate for sure and, and maybe even divorce if things can't be worked out through that separation. That would be kind of the exception to the rule. you have anything you want to say on that? Yeah, in giving advice, you always have to make sure that it doesn't get into gossip and always push them back. And, you know, I always say, you know, you probably need to seek a counselor out, you know, because the last thing you want to do is take sides, and that always ruins relationships. So, you know, like Mark said, you push them back to, you know, um, communicate and, you know, encourage them to get help. I think that's the best situation. Yeah. You are not a counselor, okay? Your job is to say, what church do you go to? Yeah, you guys need to get plugged in. Go talk to your pastor. Oh, and by the way, you you should ask your pastor about a professional counselor. Fight for your marriage. You know, make it work. You're, you're going to be so glad you did. You encourage them to go get the help they need. Don't, don't try to be a pastor counselor to them. Yeah. Because I think the worst thing that we can do is when we're having difficulty with our um, partner is go to a friend and say bad things about your partner because that friend that you're talking about, your spouse, they're going to take offense on your and, behalf. Yeah. On your behalf. So I would... I recommend not to talk about your husband in a negative way or a wife in a negative way. I would go to your seek friends. help to your yeah. friends yeah. because that never turns out well. No. And they're not going to give you good advice. <laughs> you know, the other thing, it's, it's fascinating. The other thing too is um, if you have a problem and you go to your peers for counseling, for help, right? If you have 10 different friends, you'll note they'll give you 10 different answers. 
because your friends are not professional counselors. They really don't know what they're doing. So that's why you don't go to your friends to get counseling, okay? Good. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to see if maybe you could expand a little bit on Matthew 19. There's a curious reference there. They're discussing, the disciples and Jesus are discussing marriage and divorce, and um, basically, uh, Jesus was saying what you were saying, that it was meant for life, marriage. Yes. But in this case, he said, but Moses allowed you to divorce because your hearts were hard. And then the disciples say, um, well, maybe it's better not to get married. And then he goes on to say something really interesting that I hope you can expand on. And Jesus said, not everyone can accept this statement, Jesus said, only those to whom God helps. Some are born as eunuchs, some have been made eunuchs by others, and some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. It almost sounds like he's saying that um, some people are not destined to be married or that's not the role that the Lord has for them in life. And then in, uh, he uses the word eunuchs, which is childless, basically, right? And in this case, it's even saying not married. And then in Isaiah 56, it talks again about eunuchs having an inheritance from the Lord that are better than sons and daughters. So it's an interesting concept. Can you expand on, on this idea of eunuchs? Yeah, so when you go to Genesis chapter 1, and he gives the mandate to humanity. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That's a general mandate, okay? Generally speaking, that's true. But then you have the exceptions to the rule. There's an exception to every rule that's given, right? You have also within humanity a smaller group, a minority, that they're not called to marriage. That's not, that's not their calling on their life. And in and, and fact, being single is a calling, right? And so for those that are called to a life of being single, even if that's just temporary, sometimes that's a temporary thing, right? Um, so being called to that's a high calling. And, and, and what you get to do is you're unencumbered from trying to help your spouse. If you're, a, if you're a woman, if you don't have a spouse to help, the amount of time you have to do things is amazing. It's a lot of time, right? Because men need a lot of help. Husbands need a lot of help, right? So um, being single affords you the opportunity to really do some really powerful, beautiful things for the kingdom of God. And that's a high calling. And we value that. We think that's a great thing. Getting back to the Matthew text, as far as the divorce thing, uh, very important. I really believe that what Jesus is saying is that, you know, your marriages are covenants and you can't get out of them. And it's, a, it's, it's you know, if you want to get God's attention in a way that gets a big smackdown, mess with your marriage, you know? Uh, that's a big deal. Uh, he says, now, the exception to that is um, what we would call unrepentant adultery or sexual immorality is what we call it. If, if your husband's involved in extramarital affairs and is refusing to repent or a wife, then the, the, the faithful spouse can divorce without committing adultery in their second marriage, okay? But without the unrepentant serial adultery going on, uh, e even if that's in the form of homosexuality or any other form of immorality, it has to be actual, you know, a lot of times people say, well, you know, I caught my husband looking at porn, you know, and I'm going to divorce him. That's No, that's not what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about actually being involved in a relationship with another person. Um, and, and that, if it was unrepentant and ongoing, could give you the basis for a divorce with the right to remarry without constituting uh, uh, adultery. And then that's expanded by Paul and, inclu and includes uh, physical abuse and abandonment because those two uh, will destroy a marriage as well. So if you have a husband that's not coming home for weeks at a time or months at a time, not paying the bills or whatever, Paul says he's worth, worse than an infidel, right? And that that becomes an issue of abandonment and forces the other partner, I should say greatly influences the, the other partner into adultery, you know? And then Paul, uh, I think it's either Jesus, I think Jesus in the gospel says, you're going to be held guilty for what you caused your partner to do through your abandonment or your adultery. So uh, those are uh, other issues. So good. Uh, I think we're done. I think we have, I think we're done. You have a question. She does. Uh, but we're over our time. Um, let's do it anyway. Let's do.
Do this and then we'll close. Make it quick though, Anna, really quick. Really quickly, we've been addressing marriage um, and the roles of, of uh, both. What happens to those that are not yet married but are waiting and wanting to be married? What about their roles outside? How, what is it that they should do and what is their Right, right, right. So, and I talked about this a little bit earlier, I think in the first one. So what I encourage uh, young men and women to do is, um, is uh, make sure you're solid in your relationship with God, personal relationship with Jesus, get a great education, get a college education, whether that's trade school or college or some equivalent in, in an apprenticeship, make money, right? Because if you come to, and, and here's the deal, seek God for your spouse. Say, God, I'm, I'm looking at you. You bring, you bring me my spouse. And, and your non-negotiables are, they have to be born again, love you, and love the Torah. You know, if they do, they don't have to be observant. No one's perfect, right? But they got to have that in their heart. And if so, you're going to be off to a great start. What really, really injures marriages a lot of times is people come together too early. They don't really know who they are. They don't have a good cash flow. They get married and the financial problems crop up. And then, oh man, everything goes to Wackville, right? So we want you to do those steps that we outlined earlier on to get positioned so that you can have a great start in your marriage. All right? So I think that's it. Thank you so much and Shabbat Shalom.